Good afternoon. This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County, welcoming you to the May 2022 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly live interview show the second Monday of each month on WPKN 89.5 FM, bringing you news and information about the arts and culture across coastal Fairfield County. This month, with the artist and the museum, we're delighted to welcome to the studio Richard Klein, retiring exhibitions director at the Aldridge Contemporary Art Museum in Ridgefield. Richard has had several roles at the museum over the past 30 years, including interim director, and has been exhibitions director since 1996. Welcome, Richard. Thank you so much, David, for having me. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Um, so let's start with the beginning of our title, The Artist. You, you are an artist, um, also a curator, a museum administrator, a writer, definitely a lifelong learner and explorer. Um, but of all of these, you probably started earliest as an artist. Um, yes, it, it's true. I mean, <laughs> um, and, and uh, you know, I, I used to teach and there was a point in my life where uh, I decided that um, if I was going to continue teaching, I was going to do it for the rest of my life. And uh, uh-huh. this is in the mid 80s. And uh, basically had, I wouldn't call it a crisis, but this idea like I should do something different. And at the time I was working, I was the head of the art department at the Worcester School in Danbury, a private uh-huh. school. Hmm. And I had started a gallery program at the school, the first one. And so I had been doing some curation and I was very interested in the idea of organizing exhibitions. And it was at that point, uh, it was actually 1990 when this job opened up at the Aldrich. At the time it was, I was uh, a preparator and uh, registrar, uh, kind of administrative position. And... Um, started working there, kind of thinking, oh, I'm going to do this for a couple of years to uh-huh. see what it's like. Yeah. And now it's, uh, you know, 32 years later. And right. uh, and I, I hesitate to use the word retirement because <laughs> I, I really dislike that word. It's more that I'm uh, moving into this position of having more freedom. And particularly, uh, I am going to be focusing on my own work as an artist, which, mm. you know, I've continuously done, you know, going back to when I was a teenager. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your first forays in, into art. What do you remember the, either the moment or the period where you realized this was something that really you were going to be doing? <laughs> well, I, I, was, uh, I was born and grew up uh, early part of my life in Newark, New Jersey. Uh-huh. And my uh, mother in particular, uh, she would bring me into New York City mm. to get culture. And uh, <laughs> one of <laughs> right. the things she would do was bring me to Lincoln Center. And uh-huh. I really disliked going there because I, I didn't like opera. I didn't like classical music. I mean, this is like, mm-hmm. you know, the mid-1960s. Mid uh, and then in, I believe it was 1967 or 68, we, we were in Lincoln Center, and um, there's a large sculpture by the artist Lee Bontecue that was commissioned hanging in the lobby. Right, right. And mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was, and it mm-hmm. transfixed me. It was kind of uh-huh. my first, one of the first experiences I ever had with contemporary art. You were how old? I was probably Roughly. 12, you know, yeah. 13 years yeah. old. Yeah. And um, simultaneously with that, uh, my uncle had a house uh, up on Lake George in New York and had a powerboat, and he would go around the lake. And he said one day, oh, there's this crazy artist that has all this sculpture by the lake. Huh. And we went over there, and it was David Smith's property. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and he, it was, I believe it was 1964, and he yeah. was still alive. We didn't see him, but we pulled up at this dock and walked uh-huh. around this field with all this work by David Smith. And, like, once again, like, didn't know what it was. Mm. And, um, you know, it was only 
you know, seven, eight years later, I kind of understood who David Smith was or who Lee Bontecue was for that yeah. matter. Yeah. Uh, but those were really early uh, experiences I had with, with art. And of course, like a lot of Americans and a lot of people in the art world, uh, my first passion with art was really uh, comics and cartoons, interestingly huh. enough. Um, and uh, in high school, I did, uh, you know, comics for the for the school newspaper <laughs> and kind of thought that was kind of like a career path. And my parents, of course, um, <laughs> thinking about the practicality of a career in art pushed me into graphic design, uh-huh. Uh-huh. which which I didn't like doing. Mm. And uh, so I w- I've always been kind of a contrarian. And uh, the other thing was I've never uh, – I've gone to school, but I've never – I don't have a degree. I've, I've left – I've dropped out of every school I've attended. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So a little bit like Steve Jobs, <laughs> you you realize there's an alternative yeah. that you can create yourself. Yeah, and I, I think I am like a, a self learner. I'm very self driven mm. and mm-hmm. uh, you know intellectually curious about a lot of things. And maybe at one time it was maybe a disadvantage, but as I've gotten older, I realize there's a great advantage in um, coming at education from that point of view, uh, from that standpoint. Uh, I think it. Um, it opens doors, different doors, that uh, different sorts of doors than if you go to college. Right. Uh, I guess that raises the question of authority in a relationship to authority. You, um, rather than depending on, on sources of quote-unquote authority, you are exploring yourself and find references that you find helpful rather than those that are sort of more received. Yeah, it, it, uh, another influence. It's it's interesting. I'm just reading this new biography that came out about Stuart Brand, who wrote. Yes. The, oh yeah, yeah. Which is fantastic, and the Whole Earth Catalog and uh, the Co Co Evolution Quarterly, which was the right. the magazine he published in the 70s. Yeah. They had a huge influence on me as a young person, mm. uh, and particularly Co Evolution Quarterly was the first thing I ever subscribed to in my life, and I think that kind of can do do it yourself attitude, kind of countercultural view of, mm-hmm. and also the kind of connection with science and technology right. and ecology, all of those things were, you know, very important to me uh, when I was in my, uh, you know, late teens, early 20s. Right. And that sort of holistic um, exactly. enterprise. Right. Um, I mean, I've certainly noticed your fascination with, shall we say, the material culture of our region, um, especially its industrial history its artifacts and their interaction with the environment. Can you tell us about a little bit about that? I mean, that fascination with, well, material culture, the objects of our local history? Um, yeah, I mean, I've I've always been, uh, I mean, if, if my life took a different turn, I would have become a geologist. Hmm. And I'm kind of obsessed with earth science. And, so, so when did that happen? Oh, that, that was from being a kid too, you know. Yeah. So it it it, it actually gave me a, an interest that actually evolved into an interest in deep time. This idea of understanding time in a different way, and mm. also looking at the earth, the materiality of the earth, mm. uh, was very important to me. And I've had some experiences actually uh, with the earth that I might say are transcendental. It, the, the only experience I've ever had that I border on maybe a religious experience have to do actually with the physicality of the earth. And I, it, I don't know if I want to go into it today. It's really <laughs> rather complicated. Right, but okay. uh, but um, that, that really has 
been a, a, a an anchor in my life, a really interesting anchor. And we were talking earlier before we went on the air hmm. about traveling. And like, I'm very aware when I go someplace I haven't been of thinking about the geology, the structural mm-hmm. geology and the history of that area, the history of the landscape and looking at the landscape through deep time and what was here, you know. And, right. Uh, very important to me. And I think that probably is the basis for my interest in material science. But also I have a, a, a really... Um, particular interest in history and particularly history of the United States in the Northeast and New England. And I think it's been reflected in uh, my working with indigenous artists, uh, because obviously if you're interested in New England history, you, uh, you know, the, the history of uh, colonization right. and genocide that started right. in uh, the Northeast is very important. And it's uh, another thing that I think has informed my, uh, my thinking about, uh, and I've worked with, a, you know, in, in my role as a curator, worked with a number of indigenous artists over the years. I can see that um, your interest in in time um, and place would, yeah, uh, um, would make that very, um, very really important in terms of imagining the long history of a of a place and somehow penetrating the long history of a place um, and the, certainly the indigenous culture and what's happened to that. And, I, and, you know, and I've um, lived the majority of my life in Connecticut. And so kind of understanding this landscape and this place called Connecticut, which is, you know, it's funny, I don't know, you're you're from Europe, but uh, you know, you go to Europe and people say, where are you from in the States? And I say Connecticut. And a lot of people give you this kind of like, they're looking and they're they're trying to figure, oh yeah, Connecticut, where is that? And I always say, well, it's between New York and Boston. (laughs) They do a quick answer. But it's much easier to say, I was born in Newark, in New Jersey. They give you some street cred. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. like, they know Bruce Springsteen comes from New Jersey, (laughs) Frank Sinatra, but... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, So tell us a little bit more about, um, I know that you you collect glass, for example. What's the history of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this... Um, I mean, my work is primarily with found objects and found materials, yeah. and that mm-hmm. was a big transition back in the 19, middle of the 1990s. And before that, I had worked with a variety of materials. I'd worked with stone, wood, um, uh, metal, uh, not so much with ceramics. But, um, you know, being involved in making things in this world and being very aware of consumer culture and capitalism mm-hmm. of, like, feeling somehow guilty about contributing more stuff to this world. Another thing. Another yeah. thing. And saying, well, you know, not that I'm recycling materials, but upcycling them of taking things that are already made, which are imbued with so much meaning. The stuff that culture makes already has meaning. It's dripping with meaning. Mm. And trying to amplify that. And my work comes out of surrealism. I mean, it's a, in terms of a tradition, I could say, that the work, uh, you know, is based in. This kind of idea of bringing together desperate elements that uh, and having a poetry start to uh, mm-hmm. or some conversation start to happen, mm-hmm. but with me it really has to do with uh, the materiality of of certain uh, not just objects but other things like glass. And I'm not a glass artist, but I've worked a lot with found glass because I think uh, you know the work I do is very highly crafted. So it's very physical, but you're making something out of uh, out of a material that light goes through. Right. So there's an immateriality about it too, and that idea of going back and forth between materiality and immateriality is something that really interests me. And and uh, uh, I'm thinking of the word imminence too. Something about the light and glass has a something that goes beyond the material. I guess that's what you're saying. That it's um, yeah, and and uh, you know I, I work with. 
found glass materials that are commonplace, like that we all take for granted. I mean, bottles, eyeglasses, jars, ashtrays, things that, you know, are very common in the world and kind of, and these objects are imbued with incredible amounts of meaning already. And how just by tweaking them or juxtaposing them with other things, you could really amplify. And, you know, some of my work is more psychological where it's dealing with, you know, psychological states and, uh, but a lot of it is looking at history, uh, looking out at the world, looking at nature. I mean, uh, you know, some people say my work is inf- influenced by science, but um, I would say it's influenced by nature. And I think because I'm uh, Western Europe, by Western European descent, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that science is the way we look at nature. If you're a Western European person, uh, I'm not indigenous. I don't look at. I, I don't have an animistic view of nature, although I understand that uh, the animistic view of nature, and I, I think uh, I've incorporated some of that in my work. So it's uh, more analytical, would you say? Well, it depends because I let the material speak to me. Uh, mm. I don't come to a material like an object with preconceived notion of what I'm going to do with it. Mm. Sometimes I have an object in the studio for months or even years uh-huh. before I decide that right. I w- understand what, to, and so because of the fact I let the material speak, the, fo- the, the form the, the work takes quite often is different. I, I, there's, there's various poles in my work. It goes off in different directions and that's because of the, the specific objects I'm using. Mm-hmm. And this project I did, you know, last uh, fall uh, dealing with the iron industry in Northwestern Connecticut, that was really unique and really interesting project. I hadn't really worked that way. Uh, I only worked like that once in my life many years ago. And uh, it was purely governed by kind of looking into this industrial history of iron production, the environmental degradation it caused, the fact that it was based, uh, the kind of industrial base of Northwestern Connecticut was based on uh, this arms industry. I mean, we yeah. think of Connecticut being a, uh, you know, a state right. based in defense industry, but we think of the 20th century, but it goes back to the 18th century. Hmm. Right, right. Um, I'm just interested in this um, idea of collecting uh, and whether it's relating, related to curating. I mean, when you collect, in a sense, you are curating. Yeah, I, I, I guess there is, a, to a certain degree, a, a connection. But, you know, I'm my cur- curatorial, I mean, I, my, my taste, if you look at my career as a curator, uh, the artists I work with in the group shows, is pretty broad. Yeah. And I'm attracted to things that I, uh, clearly I'm interested in. But individual artists, quite often, I'm attracted to them because of the fact that I don't quite understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. And if I if I'm doing a working with an artist and I don't learn something, it's a disappointment. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I really want to engage with an artist or an idea if it's a you know a group exhibition, of delve deeply into something that I don't I know maybe a little bit about but I don't know that much about. Right. And yeah. also materials is like looking into the history of a particular material uh, and finding out about it. I might be attracted to use something, but then I don't know the history of that material. So when do you remember when you started actually curating? Do you remember your first show? Well, this what, what I like I said when I worked at the Worcester School, they had this space called the reception center, which was this big space, and I proposed um, let's part of the year turn it into a gallery. And so I uh, the the first show I did, interestingly enough, is one of the artists that was very influential uh, in my, 
in my life in terms of the kind of work I make now was uh, the artist H.C. Westerman. I don't know if you yes. remember, yeah. who uh, came out of Chicago in the in the nineteen uh, late fifties, early sixties, mm-hmm. part of the Chicago kind of Harry. Not he was kind of not aligned with the Harry Who, which was a a, a movement in Chicago, yeah. but very funky work that was I don't want to say was influenced, but was much uh, had a lot in common with folk art, and um, I knew. Cliff Westerman. In fact, uh, in 1978, I went to the Whitney Museum to see a show of Saul Steinberg. Yeah. And on the floor above the Steinberg show was a Westerman show. I knew nothing about Cliff Westerman, and I was blown away Hmm. by this work, which was just so different than the kind of reductive work that was being done in that period. Right, right. Uh, Kind of quirky, humorous, kind of made out of wood, highly crafted. And uh, it was the first time in my life I wrote a fawning letter to Cliff Westerman. And he lived in Brookfield, Connecticut. Oh. Huh. And uh, he wrote me a letter back and said, come and visit. And I got to know him a little bit before he passed away. He passed away in the early 1980s, but became friendly with his widow, Joanna Beale, who was an artist. And uh, the first show I did at the Worcester School was a show of uh, Cliff Westerman's prints, his woodblock prints, mm-hmm. uh, just because of that familiarity with the work. And... Uh, so it was a, an opportunity for for sharing something that really excited you, and you wanted to, you know, well, share it with others. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, the other thing was that I always felt well. I mean, artists are always like this, and especially working in a private school, I always felt like I, I had a subversive role. <laughs> and uh, and so the shows I did uh, always had kind of a sub, little bit of a subversive edge to them. And Cliff's work, the prints in particular, it was a kind of humorous but dark side. I mean, he he. Uh, served in the Navy. He was on an aircraft carrier in the Pacific during the Second World War that mm. took, he was a tail gunner on an aircraft carrier that took kamikaze hits oh, yeah. and knew the, the experience of war very, you know, and there aren't that many artists that actually have fought in wars when it comes right down to it. Mm. I mean, American artists in particular, yeah. I mean, European, yes, on yeah. the other hand. Yeah. but yeah. Um, And it's interesting because um, another artist that I, I, has influenced me over the years is Joseph Boyce, who ah, fought, you know, and yeah. was not, was, uh, you know, in the German Nazi, was a, a soldier in Nazi Germany during the Second World War. But uh, Westerman's work had a dark side to it. And, uh, you know, I was attracted to it. I think one of the reasons was mm. for that reason. Mm-hmm. And um, so you were then curating these shows in that gallery for Yeah, a, a couple of years I did it. And then it was like, you know, I decided I was going to, it was funny. I, I've always, the way my life has gone. It's like, I woke up one morning, I said, I'm going to quit. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, yes. sick. I'm not doing this anymore, but I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh-huh. And there was this job opening at the museum at the Aldrich. And it's like, oh, oh that's interesting. And I'll do that for a little bit, like until I try to figure oh. out what I'm going to do. Uh-huh. And of course, uh, what happened was I started and in the space of the first, not even two years, uh, the director left and I became acting director <laughs> of the museum. Right. And it, it was part of it because I was, you yeah. know, sometimes if you're the only competent person in the room and you yes. have a variety of skills, you know, it's like you could do something even though you don't, you know, people will trust you could do it even though you might not be able to do right. it. Right. And, you know, in the period I've worked at the Aldrich, I've been acting director twice and co-interim director once and i've worked with six different directors over that period yeah. of time yeah yeah incredible so the aldridge was your first stop as a curator yeah well other than the worcester school yeah 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 that's amazing but but i didn't oh. curate i didn't actually curate uh an exhibition 
uh, until uh, first one was in 1992 when okay. I when I was uh, huh. the interim director. So uh, what were you doing then when you first? When did you I was first... a preparator registrar, which okay. meant I I took care of all the loan paperwork okay. for borrowing work. Right. I was in charge of the crew that installed and deinstalled art. Right. I, all of the kind of nuts and bolts of running a, a, a museum. I did want to, before we leave this, I did want to ask, um, you, you've said, I read that you've said that you absolutely keep your studio practice separate from your work as a curator. But I'm just curious that there must be some conversation between your own interests and your own focused discoveries and what you learn from exploring and putting together other artists' work? Oh, I mean, there's clearly a connection between what I do in the studio. I mean, uh, working as an artist and working with artists. But uh, the, the reason I keep them separate is really uh, because of their issues of conflict of interest. Of, of course, And also yeah. the art mm -hmm. world is full of nepotism of various sorts. And I, it's funny because uh, I've had people come up to me and say, you know, there's an artist named Richard Klein, and they're talking about me. And they didn't make the connection that there's, <laughs> there's I'm one and the same, the curator right, right. and the artist is the same person. And you're happy about that then? Kind well, of, I've, kind I've, of, I've managed over the years. He, I think it, it makes me comfortable to keep those two things separate because yeah. I work in an institution with a mission. Of course. And, yeah. uh, you know, we have goals. And in the studio, I could do anything I want. Right. So right. They're, they're different environments. Now, the thing is, I do bring, I believe, added value to the museum world being an artist because there aren't, I mean, there are curators who are, who are artists or have been artists, but the fact that I'm engaged actively in making things, I, I bring a different sort of worldview right. into the institutional right. environment. So it's kind of a deep root connection, but that you, at a certain level, you, you keep the two Well, on a perfect separate. day, my concerns as an artist and the concerns of the institution line up. Now, there, right. I have to say, one of the reasons I've stayed at the Alder so long, there's been many, many perfect days. I've been blessed to work in an institution yeah. where yeah. I've been given an incredible amount of freedom, and I've worked with some unbelievable people over the years, mm. other curators, trustees, uh, people, uh, staff, people on the museum. I, I mean, it, it's been a very healthy environment to be around. Right. Uh, I mean, there have been ups and downs, obviously, in this institution, like every other institution. Right. But, um, uh, you know, I, I've been blessed, actually. Right. No, I mean, it's, one of, it's an obvious thing, but really, it always comes down to the people, it seems, in my experience. Too. Well, it's, it's funny you say that, because the older I get, I realize I'm more interested in artists than art. <laughs> Art is this residual thing, you know, that has to be this made. I mean, visual art. I mean, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a frustrated musician. I mean, I, I, my engagement with PKN over the years has always been because of my love of music. Uh -huh. right. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm envious of musicians being able to, to, you know, express themselves without actually physically making some another thing for the world. An interesting point. Yeah. Right. If you're just joining us, this is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County with our May 2022 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, a monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Our guest today is Richard Klein, and our program, The Artist in the Museum, is a look at Richard's life as an artist and his experience at the Aldridge Museum, um, from which he is leaving this June as exhibitions director after 30 years at the museum. 
So I'd love now to turn to the Aldridge Museum um, and let's talk a little bit about the founder, Larry um, Aldridge. Um, can you tell me a little about him as a person? Um, well, he was passionately engaged with art. He was a force of nature. He, the museum was his life. When I came, he was still uh, a chairman of the board and it was his institution. And he founded it? In 1964. Uh-huh. And uh, you know he was extremely committed to art. He it was very old school when I came. He would come up from New York City on Friday and spend the weekend in Ridgefield and go back on Monday. He would sign every check if when bills needed to be paid. He mm. actually opened the checkbook and signed the check, questioning expenses. <laughs> and, so he was a fashion designer, is that right? Yeah. Well, um, he he started in the 1920s and 30s. His family was uh, he grew up on the Lower East Side, uh, you know, relatively modest means. And his family was in the textile industry selling, you know, uh-huh. fabric. Yeah. And he became a fashion designer. But he was more of a, a businessman than a designer. He would go over, he would see what, mm. like, uh, you know, European designers were doing uh, and kind of do a knockoff for an American audience. And because of being in, engaged in the fashion industry, he would, it took him to Europe and particularly Paris. Uh-huh. And huh. Paris after World War II, and his yeah. his first wife was interested in art, and that's when he started going to galleries. And of course, right after World War II in Europe, uh, the economy was depressed, and you could buy art incredibly <laughs> inexpensively. Yeah. Yeah. And he was interested in Impressionism, post-Impressionism, early modern work, and amassed a collection that today would be worth a fortune. I mean, Monet, Cezanne, all the way up to artists in the 50s, Giacometti, Picasso. And uh, then in the 1950s, he became uh, he started going to artist studios in New York and realized, oh, this is really interesting. And I, I think, I mean, maybe there's some parallel between my interest in art, artists more than art, because he it really enjoyed going and meeting the artists. Mm-hmm. And that was his transition in the late 50s to decide he wanted to focus on contemporary art. Hmm. He sold his entire collection of uh, the earlier work to before he opened the museum in 1964. And they... Uh, quite a profit, probably. Yeah, I mean, quite a profit. But what, like I said, if uh, but, but today's prices, it would have been astronomical. Yeah. So he took that yeah. money and put it back and started a, found, a foundation. So um, he founded his museum in 1964. Um, and you worked with him quite a bit later from 1990. Yeah, so he was chairman, like I said, he was chairman of the board still until 92. Uh, he was older than his wife and she got ill and he stepped down. He stayed, stayed a trustee through the 90s, but his role was diminished. Hmm. Uh, and he passed away in 2001. And he did come to see every exhibition at the museum uh, during his life. I mean, he he, uh, he passed away just a little bit after 9-11, actually, in 2001. So what was your relationship with him? You were a registrar? Well, I like I said, I was registrar preparator, then acting director twice, <laughs> Uh, uh-huh. and, uh, so you must you have know, worked with him pretty closely. I worked with him yeah. quite a bit. And yeah. uh, he was, he, he was, you know, he was, um, he was Jewish. He had changed his name to Aldrich to huh. be waspy, to fit into the fashion industry. Uh-huh. And if you met him, he was kind of the consummate wasp. I mean, he wore an ascot <laughs> and he's, the way he held his cigarette, like, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and one thing that endeared me to him is that he tried, he, his wife convinced him to stop smoking. And 
when he'd come up to the museum and there were artists there who had cigarettes, Uh-oh. he would go sneak out behind the museum to bum a cigarette from them and smoke cigarettes with them. Uh-huh. And so his wife didn't know he was smoking. Uh, but yeah, he, um, you know, he, he passed away in 2001. Um, and actually his memorial was held at the museum. Hmm. So was this really your first experience with a museum? Well, I mean, I'd gone to museums yeah, and I knew people visitor. who were, yeah. I knew some people who worked at, at, at museums hmm. but actually working in an institutional environment it was my first uh, first experience and you know I have to say uh, you know I participated in this transition when I came to the museum I don't know the correct metaphor but I think I the museum was still in its adolescence because uh-huh. it was still being run by its founder mm. and I participated in this transition from its adolescence to its adulthood in various ways I've avoided, uh, because I know myself really very well, I've avoided this uh, the leadership role of like, I haven't been interested in being a museum director because it takes me away from working. What I'm good at and what I'm passionate about is working with mm-hmm. artists. That's what yeah. I want to do. Yeah. Now, of course, over the years, my, the administrative part of my job has increased where I, you know, I do a lot of administrative work other than cur- curatorial work. And uh, it's not a favorite part of my job. It's necessary. And the administrative work is everything from, you know, the nuts and bolts of running the museum to uh, to, to development work, some development work. Indeed. Yes. Um, something I'm very well aware of. Um, so, I mean, your sense of the Aldridge um, in its adolescence was very positive. You liked the direction that it was going. You were partially influencing the direction it was yeah, going. I mean, I, I mean, it was because it was focused on contemporary art. I mean, we're, we weren't a, a large museum with multiple departments competing against one another. Mm-hmm. We had we had very clear, and it's funny because we were just redoing our uh, focus of our mission statement, and it's remarkably true to the history of the museum. Although we're kind of refined it, and and I think it's clearer now this idea that the reason we're there, the customers of the museum, if so to speak, are artists. Mm-hmm. We're there to serve artists, mm. and we're there to support art, contemporary visual art. And uh, that filters all of our decisions. And it's a very, very clear, narrow uh, definition of what we How do. How long has it taken to get to that point? I mean, what are the stages well, that the I mean, there's, there's been hiccups through. over the history of the yeah. institution. and uh, But, I mean, the, the mission it was pretty much set by Larry Aldrich, uh-huh. but it just wasn't really refined. Yeah. You know? And yeah. also, obviously... The museum has grown and gotten more sophisticated and more professional over the years, but the art, the museum world in general has changed in the period I've worked in. The, in, in I mean, museums now are much more open public institutions that are more responsive uh, to the public. Rather than gatekeepers. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Um, we moved here 20 years ago with three very young boys, and the Oldridge was one of the first places I remember visiting. And I remember really being struck by how um, visitor-friendly, fa- especially family-friendly it was. Um, I mean, how conscious is that in the... Um... Well, when I first came, the, the museum wasn't that family-friendly. Um, Larry Aldrich had this thing, this idea like, well, you put art on the walls and people will come. Right. Sort of attitude. <laughs> we had an education program, but it was pretty low-key. And uh, in... Uh, the mid-1990s, Harry Philbrick became director. Uh-huh. And 
I think he was the first person who's director who realized like the museum is embedded in upper Fairfield County, this community where people move to raise children. Mm. So the family thing mm. of getting kids engaged mm. or as a way of getting adults more engaged in contemporary art, right. because you know people are have always been suspicious of contemporary artists, yeah. as you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it seems really to have to work. Um, so I'm sure you've been asked this a lot, but sort of looking back, you know, what are the ex- exhibitions that you've put together that you know really stand out that you've um, either been most pleased by or that you've learned most from I mean it's hard when you've done what close to 100 shows yeah and uh, I was trying to actually figure that out how many <laughs> exhibitions I've curated at the museum and some of them have been quite small we call them projects but it is yeah. around 100 actually yeah um, well you know I mean the, you t- we talk about the dis- interest in history and science I, I think some of the shows I've done that touch on on history have been things that have been re- I've really felt passionate about. Um, I did a in 1999 I did a, an exhibition called Playing Off Time: Contemporary Photographers and Dialogue with the Past, which was a rephotography project. So other people had done rephotography projects where you're getting contemporary photographers to come and photograph uh, locations based on historical photographs. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But yeah. I, 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 it was all, it was actually, it was every, it was the, the Norwalk uh, Route 7 corridor from Norwalk up to Danbury. And I dealt with the historical societies of, of uh, gathering historical uh-huh. photographs and then uh-huh. asking a, a, a quite a wide range of photographers to respond, but leaving it very open-ended where they could do what they want, where it wasn't a strict traditional rephotography project. And, um, that was really the first time I dealt with local history, and I think it made a lot of sense, too, because the Aldrich being an historic district, a contemporary institution embedded in a historic district. Right. In it, and, you know, our old building, the original building, being a building dating from the 18th century, uh, there was a connection with place and uh, also engaging this community, the historical community. And, and, you know, on the surface, the people usually interested in, in regional or local history and the people interested in contemporary art are on opposite ends of a spectrum right. and trying to, you know, fashioning something that might bring these two worlds together. And did it work? It did work, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, you got I, a good response. I, you know, the, 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 everywhere from the Danbury Historical Society to the Norwalk Historical Society of getting them engaged mm-hmm. uh, with getting photographs. and. And, and then um, in 2004, this was an exhibition that I really reflected, I think, on my interest in materiality. I did this exhibition called Bottle, Contemporary Art and Vernacular Tradition, was looking at the bottle as a form used by our contemporary artists and the connection with uh, folk art. Hmm. Particularly, you know, in folk art, there's a tradition of building yeah. ships and bottles. Yeah. And I don't know if you know about whimsy bottles. Yes, right. And uh, <laughs> actually borrowing a, a number of whimsy bottles from the American Folk Art Museum in New York. Hmm. But then a range of like over 20 artists that were using the bottle form. And uh, I mean, uh, Joseph Boyce, Moira Davey, Tony Ferrer, Reverend Howard Finster. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> David Hammonds, Mona Hatoum, Damien Hurst, Whitfield hmm. Lavelle, Barry McGee. Uh, Rosamond Purcell, Charles Ray, Allison Saar, Al, uh, Arlene Sheckett, Kiki Smith, uh, really an incredible range of artists. And it was a way of dealing with like a folk art and outsider art influence on contemporary art. Uh, and uh, and also because of the materiality of it, generally glass, of something that was dear to my heart. Right. I noticed we were talking about the surreal, um, I often think of this as wit, of bringing uh, disparate things together 
I mean, from these two shows, it's um, it's the same Im impulse that you're really enjoying bringing often disparate um, experiences, dis uh, disparate things together to see what to see what happens. Yeah, and, and then in, in 2006, I did this exhibition called No Reservations, Native American Culture right. and History in Contemporary Art. Mm. And what, for me, uh, you know, I, I generally, if you look at the group exhibitions I do, I try to pick subjects that actually bring together, don't divide. Uh, the world is so divided culturally. Mm. And I try to bring uh, artists together who have some sort of commonality on some theme. And... I brought together native artists and non-native artists. The native artists were dealing with their cultural history and their culture, while uh, the non-native artists were dealing with the shared tragic history of, of, your, yeah. of colonization yeah. and a dialogue between the two of them. And uh, that to me was, you know, this was a major project that had a, a big influence on me personally. And uh, I mean, as a curator, but also in the studio. And I talk about my interest in history and kind of mm -hmm. uh, delving deeper kind of into uh, the history of North America, the colonization of North America. I just wanted to go back to you when you were saying that um, the more exhibitions you've put together, the more you've become interested in the artists as artists than necessarily in the, their work that you have put, brought together for that particular show. I'm wondering if that says something about your awareness of the primacy of process, of discovery, um, that, the, that the works themselves are kind of like reports from the front of a con continuing process that the artists are themselves engaged upon? Yeah, I mean, the process, my process as a curator is... Um, you know, I look at a lot of enormous amount of art in various contexts, and um, I see something that fascinates me. And I, I, I've used this analogy before. It's like curation uh, with a, with a solo artist show is kind of like dating, where you you see the person across the room <laughs> at the bar, or you uh -huh. see the art hanging into gallery, or you visit an artist studio during open studios, and it's like, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And you get to want to meet them and get to know them. And then there's this kind of process, this dance you do that, that mm -hmm. culminates in the exhibition, you know. <laughs> and and uh, um, it sounds so like it, a poem you could write. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know if that answered the question. Right. <laughs> um, but it's um, you know, you're, it's as if you're visiting an artist in the process that they're engaged upon on their on their journey, if you like, and. Um, you're interested in, if you like, a snapshot of where they are at that point, but you're really interested in what they're what they're engaged upon, what the what's on, in their mind, what they're really, you know, of course, following. I mean, yeah. that, that's that. I think that's my concern as an artist or artists that are engaging or what's coming next. And my one of the things I really love is the ability for the museum to actually commission artists to do new work. Of of like talking to an artist and saying, you know, let's yeah, let's do an want, exhibition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What what do you want to do? And you know, in many cases, it's if the artist is a painter, it's pretty simple. They're going to be making new paintings. But in many cases, I've worked with artists who are you know building uh, elaborate um, elaborate things at the museum on site. Right. 
And, yes, uh, I remember one of those. Well, there was uh, uh, your turn, uh, the project yes, of, uh, yeah. of Ward Shelley and Alex Schroeder, right, right. where uh, <laughs> these two artists that uh, uh, worked together to do performative architecture that built a large structure that they lived on for three separate periods of 10 days in the museum. They lived 20, they didn't go off the structure for 10 right. days. All of their amenities were built into the structure and they engaged the public okay. coming to yeah. the museum. Yeah. And it was quite an elaborate project where we had to get a structural engineer involved to, okay, the plans for this. I mean, it was 24 feet high, this thing. And they, it was a wall. They lived, one of them lived on each side of the wall with amenities that were like That's sliding right. uh, <laughs> drawers that went back and forth. So there was a bedroom, it was a bed that could only be on one side of the wall or the other. So if one of them slept, the other one couldn't sleep. Mm -hmm. So they had to constantly negotiate, uh, you know, who was using the amenity. And I mean, that was an incredibly elaborate project that, uh, very rewarding. And, and I think, you know, I, I like also bringing the artist to the museum. I did the same thing. It uh, wasn't, ex wasn't the same thing, but uh, Helena Hernmark, who's the well-known uh, fabric artist, yeah. tapestry yeah. weaver, who lives in Ridgefield. Uh, I did a show with her three years ago where I invited her to move her studio practice to the museum where for three months she was weaving on site mm -hmm. uh, four days, a three or four days a week. And this idea of actually art being made and the artist being present in the museum, I, I, it's something that interests me. It, it animates uh, an institutional space in a way, in a different way. And from what I've gathered, very popular with the public, and the public is often very interested in actually seeing an artist work. Yeah, and Helena was concerned that she wouldn't get any work done. And she she, <laughs> she had this, there was, she started out with, it was a rule like, uh, at least one day when she was there, she wouldn't talk to people. But that broke down very, very quickly <laughs> right. because she she liked talking to people, and she was there with her uh, her uh, assistant uh, May, who um, the two there were usually two of them working there, and they they wove a, a significantly large tapestry actually over a three month period, despite the public intruding uh, when when the museum was open. Right. If you're just joining us, this is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County and our May 2022 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Our guest today is Richard Klein, and our program, The Artist in the Museum, examines Richard's life as an artist and his experience at the Aldridge Museum, from which he is leaving this June as exhibitions director after 30 years at the museum. Richard, we, we talked about this um, already, but I wanted to come back to this issue of the arts and the sciences. I mean, it seems clear to me that I think, like me, both as an artist and as a curator, you see art as a kind of fellow traveller to the sciences in that they are both different but very related ways of exploring, discovering, and celebrating the natural world and perhaps also the impact we have on that. Um, on that world. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking of your own work we discussed earlier, but also some of the recent shows you've done. Um, I'm particularly, I, I mean, I was really amazed by the show on and the catalogue and the uh, event um, on weather. Was it Weather Report? Weather Report, uh, yes. Which I thought was, showed a fabulous interplay of, of science and art. Do you want to talk either more about the show or about that the, the way that sciences and, and art work together. Well, being engaged as I am with the natural world, uh, I love the weather. 
I mean, and first of all, who doesn't? I mean, the whole thing about, you know, everyone, we all talk about the weather. It's something, and and the weather to me is something beyond just whether it's raining. And of course, in this era where we're concerned with climate change, the show was really about the Earth's atmosphere. And uh, it was, uh, there was a a ecological threat in it. There was a threat of just the grandeur of of how incredible uh, the Earth's atmosphere is. And and realizing, I mean, there had been shows done about the subject, but I wanted to approach it from a really broad brush of how artists, you know, kind of uh, think about the weather in different ways. And uh, it was, once again, uh, I went into this knowing a little bit about the weather, but uh-huh. like on this learning curve and working, you know, with some pretty interesting people. I mean, one of the things I brought into the show was um, uh, there's an artist in California named Pat Pickett who uh, actually used to live on Long Island who um, would attach pens to the branches of trees oh, yeah. Yeah. and put uh, paper on easels where the wind would uh, would move the tree and the tree would do a drawing, its own drawing. And I was really interested in that work. I got in touch with her and it turns out that she went to this conference in uh, Australia uh, of uh, weather-related people. There was a, a, a conference about uh, wind in trees, but it was all scientists. Mm. She was the only artist there. Mm. And she met this woman named Amanda Bunce, who uh, is a graduate student at uh, UConn up in Stores, who uh, runs this program called Stormwise, or is engaged with a uh, uh, program called Stormwise which is funded by Eversource, the utility company, uh-huh. yeah. because obviously the power company is concerned about wind and trees because wind and <laughs> right. trees bring down the power. <laughs> so she, I, I got in touch with her and I found out she had the most amazing job where she had these three forests in Connecticut. She had sensors on these trees to monitor and understand the movement of trees in different kinds of weather conditions. And I got in touch with her and said, you know, all of this, all of the, uh, the material she was collecting was data. It was not, there was nothing visual about it. It was data-driven mm-hmm. research. And I said, this is really interesting. I'd love to be able to figure out a way to manifest the data that you're doing mm. visually. And can we put sensor on a tree at the, or sensors on a tree at the museum? So she got in touch. So there's this thing at, at uh, UConn, uh, the Digital Experience Lab, which are these people sitting, waiting for different people from the university to come and give them projects to do. <laughs> so she went to them, and uh, these two uh, people who worked uh, for the program there, they got really excited. And w- we worked with them to actually – now, you could say this really wasn't art. Because we had it was a big monitor, and they figured out a way to to represent the movement of this tree and the wind speed and wind direction graphically. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's it edged over, like started to step into the art world, right, right, uh, right. And uh, so that was you know there was straight art in the show. That, mm-hmm. I mean, clearly made by artists about right. the sky <laughs> and the Earth's atmosphere. But this is an example of something where kind of a hybrid sort of. Uh, thing uh where there was a conversation going yeah right exactly and and also getting you know some researchers engaged and we did a uh we actually did a seminar on the subject up at uh westcon in danbury uh with the department meteorology department there yeah uh, just before the show opened so i'm sure this interest will continue in your future work well the thing is i'm leaving in june but I am returning in 2023 mm-hmm. as a guest curator to work through this final exhibition. Yes. I, 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 I'm not slamming the door. I'm kind of stepping, right. sneaking out the back door in a way. Um, uh, a show I'm working on called Prima Materia, the uh, periodic table in contemporary oh, art. Oh, my. Yeah. And wow. uh, once again, it's, uh, it's an exhibition. Uh, uh, 
uh, a concept that brings together artists from all different backgrounds and disciplines and hmm. kind of dealing with materiality and this basic materiality and particularly uh, like the weather show dealt with uh, climate change, this is going to deal with these issues about resource extraction and uh, oh, commodities yeah. and yeah. how yeah. Um, one of the artists, I got a funny story, this artist, Ashley Epps, who lives in New Mexico, he was up in, uh, he was up in New York and uh, he parked his car in the street on Brooklyn and someone cut off his catalytic converter. Mm-hmm. Because you know they're, oh, yeah. they're and of course the the reason the price of platinum that's in the catalytic converter is going up most platinum comes from Russia. Suddenly we're not getting any platinum from <laughs> Russia, so suddenly catalytic converters are being stolen. Mm. Uh, and so here's an example of an yeah. element and the availability of an element kind of affecting you know daily lives of Americans. But there'll be about uh, twenty artists uh, and twenty elements in the periodic table, or 118 elements in the periodic table. Most of them are rare and man-made, yeah. and, but we're yeah. going to be dealing with common ones and a really diverse roster of artists, actually. Fantastic. When will that be? Did you It'll say? open in uh, February 2023. Okay. Be sure we'll be there. Uh, another subject, one of the things we struggle with at the Cultural Alliance is the relationship of the life and culture of Fairfield County with New York City. I mean, no sense to deny that we're living on the doorstep of one of the major art capitals of the world, and we try to negotiate that, especially in trying to reach out to collectors here to maintain that there is a wealth of work and, and activity right here. I wonder how you've negotiated that relationship um, yourself, both as an artist and as a curator at, at the museum. Well, you know, as you say, you know, we're in the orbit of New York City. The, the wealth in Fairfield County, the concentrated wealth, has to do with its proximity to right. New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, for that reason, a lot of people, uh, if they're interested in visual art, it's so easy to go into the city, get on the train, and go to see art. And uh, it's something you know we've been working at. And the 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 thing I have to say that you know in the last couple of years, the the uh, increase of uh, uh, publicity that the museum has garnered, the, the we put a lot of energy in marketing and publicity to get attention. And unfortunately, in today's media climate, it's like you have to do that, and yeah. it's paid off. Hmm. Um, but you're right. There's an enormous, uh, you know, there are people who collect art up here. We're, it's always interesting to me that we're working with an artist uh, who might have, you know, has a, maybe a st- the start of their career or in the middle of their career. And we say, oh, we want to borrow this painting that was in your last show. And we find out, oh, it's in Easton, Connecticut. Like who owns that? <laughs> like it's right in our backyard. We're not aware. Like oh, and you know there are people out here. I mean, I'm not, I'm saying they're not major collectors necessarily. Where they're going to be, you know, the the art news top 100 collectors in the in the United States. But there are people out here who collect art seriously. And I think that's one thing I've seen change in my career in the museum world is the generation coming up. I think people are better educated and are more aware of art and the importance of art, visual art. And I see more people, I think, you know, all the galleries, the, the incredible increase of galleries, particularly in New York, is like, that work is not being sold to A-list collectors. It's being sold to people who are intelligent, curious people who want to have mm. real art on their walls. And, you know, the one thing about the Aldrich that is a great advantage is we're in the orbit of New York, but we're not in New York. And actually being in a, in a historic district in this New England town is an interesting environment to work in for many artists. And not just artists from New York City, but from other locations. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Um, I did a project a number of years ago with a British artist, Peter Liversidge. I don't know if you saw that exhibition, 
who uh, was really engaged with local history, actually, um, and was fascinated with the history of colonial. Uh, <laughs> there was just the, the reenactment of the Battle of Ridgefield. Yes, right, right. And uh, yeah. he actually took on some of that subject matter. But mm. uh, um, now the other thing that's happened is, uh, and this is pre-COVID, is this exodus an expansion right. of the New York art world into the Hudson Valley and upstate Connecticut, mm-hmm. Litchfield County, Western Massachusetts. Uh, certainly, you know, the things that are going on in New Haven now, the, uh, there's a lot of, you know, with the creation of uh, places like Next Haven, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, the uh, continuing relevance of art space in New Haven. Uh, there's a lot going on outside, you know, ur- major urban areas uh, in, in the Northeast. I was just up recently over the weekend at a gallery in Holyoke, Massachusetts, a contemporary, small contemporary gallery called Pulp that's been in existence for a couple of years. You know, a credible gallery in this, you know, older industrial, small industrial city in the center of Massachusetts. And that's a very, that's a very healthy thing. The thing about upstate Connecticut, too, is uh, artists are moving up there or have been living up there. Um, and there's also a collector base. There are a lot of people from New York City who have second homes, uh, and uh, COVID has accelerated that, obviously. So that has been that, you know, there's a synergy between patronage and art making that's happening. Right. And, uh, you know, it's true with the Hudson Valley. So too. it's looking good. <laughs> yeah, I think it's po- positive. And, you know, the, the art world seems to work on a different. Uh, I mean, when there's been recessions and and all sorts of things, the art world has you know has been remarkably uh, insulated from all of that. Hmm. Even, Resilient. Even hmm. after nine eleven, it was interesting to me the way that you know collectors, a number of collectors, made points to go out and buy art right after nine eleven because they realized that that was the time to support the gallery and art, you know, the art world. Well, Richard, the time has flown by. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for coming in. Um, and I wish you the best. Um, I'm sure you're going to take full advantage of the time that you will have after June, and I'm really looking forward to the yeah. show in January. One thing I, I just wanted to say, it's a little bit of a personal plug. If you're, if you're curious about what I do, is uh, I show with uh, Kenny's Barnes Fine Art in Kent, Connecticut. Yes. And uh, the show, I'm working on a show that will open this summer on uh, July 22nd at uh, the Schoolhouse Gallery in Provincetown, which I've shown with in the All past. Right. Yeah. And I'm doing a show actually that touches, uh, interestingly enough, on the these dark several years we've gone through, but also um, relates to uh, New England history. Does it have a title? Two If by Sea. Oh, great. From, from yes. uh, the famous poem by oh. Longfellow yeah. uh, about Paul Revere's ride. Well, we'll be there. And thank you again, Richard. This has been delightful. Thank you so much, David. This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County. You've been listening to our May 2022 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, a monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Our guest today was Richard Klein with our program, The Artist and the Museum, examining Richard's life as an artist and his experience at the Aldridge Museum Uh, which he leaves in June as exhibitions director after 30 years at the museum. If you miss part of the broadcast or just want to hear it again, you can hear the show on WPKN Podcasts on SoundCloud. I'm David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County. Please tune in Monday, June the 13th for the next edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture.